HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. Hey everyone, this is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end of year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And in case you haven't noticed, the days are getting shorter, and of course the nights are getting longer. In fact, the winter solstice is just about upon us. It's December 21st, so whenever you are listening to this, it may have already passed, but it is indeed the shortest day of the year. Or some who are night owls would love to say, yeah, it's the nightest, longest night of the year. Well, the winter solstice has, since ancient times, has been celebrated all over the world. They've recognized this astronomical occurrence and celebrated the subsequent return of the sun. And it has a lot of connections to a lot of holidays that we now celebrate through religious, uh, more traditional religious rites, such as Christmas and Hanukkah. And the old sus- these old traditions indeed have influenced how we celebrate, along with the food and the lights and the feasting. And joining me today to talk about winter solstice celebrations, old and new, is Kathy Kaufman. Kathy is a lawyer turned professional chef and food historian with a passion for sharing knowledge of historic and contemporary foodways. She's a consultant to various museums and institutions on historic dining and is the current president of the Culinary Historians of New York and an adjunct professor of food studies at the New School. 
She's She was senior editor of Oxford University Press's Savoring Gotham and Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink. And Kathy is the author of Cooking in Ancient Civilization. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much, Linda. My pleasure. You know, it's interesting. Last year this time, you and Michael Crondall were on talking about um, traditional and some older uh, Christmas sweets. Yes. And it seems that Christmas time, and then I, I thought to have you on again at Christmas time, why do I keep thinking of Kathy at Christmas time? Well, then I recalled that one of the very first programs um, I, that I enlist, enlisted you to present for the culinary historians was on um, the ancient, on Saturnalia and, and winter solstice celebration way back when. So I guess that's sort of ingrained in my head that Kathy can talk about winter <laughs> solstice. <laughs> well, winter solstice celebrations, Saturnalia, the Mithratic celebrations that are also part of the Roman world, um, they're all fascinating. And when you look at the way they are put together and some of the religious overpinnings uh, that are uh, placed with them, you can see an awful lot of cross-fertilization and you know to try and tease out what are the original celebrations. It's kind of a fool's errand, I yeah. think. But there is a tremendous amount of literary evidence, archaeological evidence, uh, if you are a numis, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, <laughs> numismatic, if, if you like ancient coins, you can actually also see some evidence for some of these ancient celebrations that are festivals of light or festivals honoring the return of the unconquered sun, as they like to call it. Right. And interesting that, you know, the sun appears as the festival and the celebration of the birth of rebirth of the sun and we have um, in the Christian religion the birth of the sun all falling on the same day well December 25th supposedly December 25th is when you actually start to notice the day getting a little bit longer a couple days after the solstice um it's either that or it actually can also go back to calculations under the Julian calendar put in right. by Julius Caesar <laughs> such that December 25th was actually the day of the solstice. Uh, but I've always been amazed that people can actually detect days getting a little bit longer. I mean, think about something like Stonehenge and the yeah, way yeah. that is oriented to get the sun shining through, you know, one opening onto another spot on the solstice, how ancient people both moved those huge rocks and were able to do those sorts of calculations. It's amazing. Yeah. And you see the same things with, you know, Druids, Celts uh, in Brittany and Normandy. Uh, I guess when you don't have other distractions, when you're not checking your Twitter feed, you can probably <laughs> be a little more observant about the length of the we day. We had time for so many things. Yes, yeah, we those, did. We in did. those days, yes. Well, let's, let's take our listeners back to... Um, Whatever period you want to go to, whatever whatever part of the world you want to focus on, because literally every part of the world was, you know, this this occurred, and people in all these different areas had some type of recognition or celebration. Well, um, take us back to some of those early times. Uh, I like to really start with Rome uh, because we've got really good documentation. And I know a fair amount about uh, ancient Roman food and Roman culinary culture. Uh, so there are two different celebrations we should be thinking about with Rome. The first is Saturnalia 
which is the pagan uh, celebration. It is designed to be this kind of period of social inversion where slaves and those who were economically dependent upon their socioeconomic betters had a week-long period of celebration, of being fed wonderful things. Uh, There is a line from one of the Roman authors about, you will enjoy this pig, which was fed on acorns for your Saturnalian feast. And I think that's, you know, one of the first... Uh, foundational myths of that roast boar that mm-hmm. you think of with much more uh, recent uh, Christmas feasts. Uh, but you had this period where people were allowed to drink to excess. It was encouraged. It was kind of like uh, what we see as New Year's Eve with people getting you know, pleasantly sloshed and then waking up with that uh, headache on New Year's Day and eating slop, uh, Hop and John because that's a you know good uh, kind of hangover greasy. Cure. <laughs> it's a good hangover cure, exactly. Um, but Saturnalia was one of those periods where gifts were exchanged. The socioeconomic betters would make payments to those folks who were dependent on them. It was really a redistributive uh, economic moment, not that it lasted past the week, but it was a sort of thing that you would get uh, essentially a Christmas tip. And that was one way of helping to ensure a social uh, harmony among the different classes. And it was based on feasting. The other uh, celebration in the ancient Roman world was the Mithratic cult, which came in a little bit later. And that was one that had at its forefront um, the Sol Invictus, the uh, celebration of the unconquered sun. And that was traced, actually, to December 25th. Uh, It was a feast that, um, while it was a pagan god, uh, the Sol Invictus, it was a superior god to all others. And it actually doesn't come in until... uh, relatively late in uh, Roman history. It's a second century uh, AD invention uh, or importation, and it comes from uh, Persia, or at least it's thought to come from Persia. And there was a lot of feasting that was going with that, and it uh, was a little upsetting to the polytheists because this was really putting one god uh, above Jupiter, who you know, was up until that point the chief god in the uh, Roman pantheon. And uh, the feasts that were there for the unconquered sun uh, also involved certain uh, culinary symbols that started to look deceptively Christian. Uh, Mm -hmm. Bread was put on an altar for the unconquered sun. Um, So very, very interesting. There, Some scholarship thinks that our Christmas celebration is much more closely related to the unconquered son of the Mithratic cult than to Saturnalia. That's interesting. And it does, it it makes a lot of sense um, that coming later as it does, I mean, they were starting to to have a lot of these celebrations, as you say, with different different pagan gods. um, And the son being one, Mm -hmm. that it was was still, even though um, through different religions even when through christianity there were still sun worshipers it was they still worship whether they called it the you know the god the sun god or not 
they were they they did worship the sun god in certain ways without it interfering with their you know without the christian beliefs no absolutely if you think about you know the first couple of centuries after the birth of christ there is a tremendous amount of religious uh debate shall we say that's going on there are all sorts of different sects different religions uh, you know, of course, Christianity starts as kind of a heretical sect of Judaism, and uh, yeah, we still see a little bit of that in some of the uh, yeah, Jews for Jesus. Is that uh, yeah, is that a Christianity? Is that a form of Judaism? Right. You know, there are people who will argue both sides uh, on that one. Uh, but it really kind of fascinating. Uh, one thing I came across uh, a description of a Saturnalian feast. Uh, that struck me as really curious, and it, it hadn't hit me until very recently. One of the foods that served are fritters and cheeses for Saturnalia. That's very interesting because cheeses came uh, came into celebration heavily in more of the Nordic cultures as well for their Yule tide, their Yule festivals. Well, certainly it comes in because it's easy to preserve cheese yeah. in a northern climate. Right. But something that I uh, learned recently researching Hanukkah and its origins is that cheese was considered a Hanukkah food. Uh, starting around the 14th century with some of the rabbinical writings. Hmm. And it's this very interesting uh, confusion of biblical stories. Uh, When original texts were lost and people had kind of debased texts, uh, we all know the story of Hanukkah, which is a celebration of light. You know, the Maccabees are there, you know, defending against people who were trying to Hellenize Judea. And, you know, there's only one day's worth of oil left in the temple, yet the temple light lamps burn for eight days. So, yes, we have to have foods cooked in oil. And, you know, fritters are, you know, latkes, whatever you want to call them, are one of the traditional foods. Uh, but interestingly, some of the rabbis started thinking the story of Judith and Holofernes was also a Hanukkah story in that here is a woman who is defending Judaism against an oppressor. And what does she do? She feeds Holofernes uh, a salty cheese that requires him to drink a lot of wine. He gets drunk and she offs him. (laughs) So these rabbinical scholars are saying we should be eating cheese in addition to oil-cooked foods at Hanukkah, and then you read these Roman traditions, cheese and fritters are part of your Saturnalia feast. So it just shows the amazing uh, overlap between what is happening in the Mediterranean region. Right. Well, you mentioned um, the dates and, of course, the the Julius the Julian calendar, which didn't come about until later. And then... Um, it was I read I came across somewhere that in Egypt mm-hmm. so we're still talking here in the southern you know mm-hmm. uh, hemisphere that in Egypt um, January 6th was noticed as the day the shortest day of the year and there was celeb- they, that was celebrated as the solstice um, whereas of course we know it today as the epiphany yeah well and then it was also celebrated as the epiphany of the sun's rebirth and the the whole thing was just you know all tied together very nicely it is one of these situations where calendars have shifted there are 
a bunch of days, depending upon which calendar you are looking at, are either included or excluded. So the January 6th of that Egyptian calendar and some of the Eastern Orthodox calendars actually might have fallen truly on the solstice. Yeah. It's um, one of those situations that we didn't have a good calendar reform going on. There, there wasn't a uniform calendar at Sometimes that point. Sometimes the sundial didn't work, too, because the sun wasn't shining. You know, so. Well, yeah, that's another one of those great mysteries. What do you do on a cloudy day? You know, how, do you, how do you go and make your calculations if you've got uh, cloud cover? Well, of course, all of this ties to um, food, gardening, harvesting, Mm -hmm. and no wonder that, you know, feasts, they were presented. Um, There was a shift in, of course, the cycle of gardening and and the slaughtering of animals. That's all what you, as as I say, you've been talking about, you know, the Mediterranean region. Mm -hmm. And there were other supplies on hand Mm -hmm. where they knew they would have food even during the, you know, those heavier, darker days to come. But then you go up north to the Nordic region, and they really were concerned about having enough food to get through those dark, wintry days. Oh, yeah. It was a much bleaker prospect. Uh, Not only are those days even shorter as you go farther north. I mean, you just think about uh, being in northern Germany or England or Scandinavia where uh, you know, the sun is setting at 3.30 instead of the 5 o'clock that it sets uh, in New York. Uh, during the uh, shortest days of the year, and you've got a shorter growing season. You've got a problem of overwintering your animals because you're not going to have access to the uh, pasturage that you need. So there is, you know, the great slaughter that takes place, you know, starting around Michaelmas, uh, which is in November, and you have these slaughterings and putting up meats for the winter season, uh, sausages, hams, that sort of thing. But it takes a while for those to cure. So the Christmas uh, holiday or any of the Yule holidays uh, were all these feasts to eat a lot of fresh meat and put by what you could, uh, preserve what you could, obviously, with uh, cheeses, things like that, uh, drying fruits, apples, or storing them in uh, kind of root cellar-like things, but you are absolutely correct. By uh, February, people knew that the larder was going to be running kind of low, and this was uh, a real period of celebration. We're going to talk some more about the types of foods that we might find on some of those tables and the transition to more of our modern-day celebrations when we come back after this short break. Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. 
Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Kathy Kaufman, and we're talking about winter solstice celebrations. We've been focusing on the ancient, and um, Kathy, we were mentioning the the slaughter and, and the foods and hard to put our finger on really what in particular would have been on a lot of the tables, but certainly our proclivity for big holiday roasts, mm-hmm. Christmas roasts, or, you know, the standing rib or the pork roast or the Christmas ham, it just seems to reason that it has its roots in a lot of these celebrations. Oh, absolutely. When you think about um, the hunt, you don't want to hunt too much in the spring when animals are calving and nursing their young. You want to wait until you can be very ecologically sustainable and hunt mature animals in the fall. And, of course, you start hunting them in the fall, the wild boar, venison, other things. And these, you know, fabulously tasting animals make a very, very logical addition to your holiday feast. And, of course, there is the slaughter of animals to the extent that you are a um, pastoralist or a farmer that you cannot overwinter. So there are plenty of things. And I think wild boar in particular uh, had an appeal because it's, you know, a handsome animal. Uh, the same thing with stags and venison, these very noble, aristocratic-looking animals, uh, things that would show the um, proclivities of the hunter, the uh, the skill of the hunter in bringing down one of these magnificent beasts and then sharing it with community. I think that is one of the things that um, underlies, obviously, so many of these feasts is that they are designed to bring communities together and to share the bounty that uh, the successful have had with those who have not been as successful. All right. Um, and, of course, you were talking about the, the competition with the sun god, uh, during this time with in some of the ancient cultures. And up north, there was a little competition from the god Odin. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, that was, it was really, as you mentioned, it was all about the hunt. It was really about, you know, getting those, those animals and, and the sacrificing to this god, you know, the god of hunt. So it was, it's, it's so many, so, so multifaceted as far as, as the, um, well, the, you know, the I, celebrations and the and the and the, who they were you know, honoring. You know, it, it's looking at mythology, folklore. There is almost this um, kind of hum, human consciousness that permeates. Uh, if you look at um, st- uh, studies of mythology, things like you know, Fraser's The Golden Bough, which tells you how so many different cultures have had these sorts of foundational myths and need to celebrate in certain ways. I, I think it's very much uh, part of our human psyche right. that we need to do these sorts of things. Um, one thing I was thinking about in terms of more northern climes, 
um, is wassailing. Mm-hmm. And that has so many different uh, manifestations. You've got wassailing in terms of going around and caroling and singing and hoping to get a little bit of a uh, Christmas gift or tip from those that you are wassailing to. Or it's passing the big cup around Mm -hmm. with the ale and often bread in it to thicken it and often apple and some spices. Uh, But I think to me the most interesting aspect of wassailing is uh, the stories of going into the orchards and pouring ale on the roots of the apple trees to ensure a good apple crop the following year. And, you know, that sort of wassailing, paying homage to the apple trees, uh, to me, uh, tells you so much about what's happening at holidays, of being grateful for the past and also showing concern about the future, and particularly in the North, not knowing what your future was going to be. Right. It's interesting. Several years ago, um, and I can't remember who was on, doing a show on these a lot of these similar uh, rites, mm-hmm. you know, like um, pouring, like the wassailing in the, in the orchards, and, and also different foods eaten at the end of the year um, to bring good fortune to crops and mm-hmm. different things, like eating nine grapes at, you know, right before the stroke of midnight or whatever mm-hmm. that, you know, I'll have to go back. I would think that was a Germanic thing. I'll have to go back and look at, at where yeah, that I'm was. Yeah, I'm not sure about but it. Was, but you're right. There, people were very sensitive to, you know, not just feasting and, and, and drinking themselves, mm-hmm. but, but knowing. Well, and that's the other thing about looking forward to the new to the sun coming out again the re- yes. the reveal the rebirth and that their crops would be growing once again it was time to plant soon they had to get think about you know new new crops so that that there was a lot of thought about their ongoing life there is that and we don't know how far back wassailing goes or wassailing in terms of uh, you know lubricating the roots of the apple trees um, it's thought to be back in uh, Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. times, so mm-hmm. going back many, many hundreds of years, although the first documentary evidence that I'm aware of is a little bit later, and I am wondering if some of this might uh, be an effect of that many ice age that we had in the you know 15th and 16th centuries if you look at you know some of those Bruegel paintings hmm. of everything being frozen, frozen over, over. Um, and that is kind of the same time where you see lots of these references to wassailing now it could be just mere historical accident and coincidence because documentation the farther back you go the less you often uh, tend to have but I'm wondering if there's something uh, some connection between realizing that people were living in this particularly harsh uh, micro ice age and the need to make these offerings uh, of whatever nature, be it, uh, you know, even if you are in a Catholic or Christian environment, you still, you know, hedge your bets by watering those apple trees with your wassail. Right. Well, of course, then there are some of us who just know that that's from whence we get our punch bowls. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and we can, and then we go on to our modern day celebrations exactly. uh, with, the, with the punches. And um, yeah, and maybe still, once again, we have to think about unsure climate and what's mm-hmm. happening. Interesting, too, that 
so many people, it seems that so many groups, maybe because they've, they've abandoned their traditional religion, uh, or any kind of forms of Christian type of mm-hmm. celebration, there are a lot of groups going back to these winter solstice celebrations or adding them to their list. Another another opportunity to celebrate, I guess. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Why not? Uh, but modern day, it's interesting, modern day tables now with our Christmas feast, Hanukkah mm-hmm. celebrations, um, include a lot of foods of the harvest. A lot of, yeah. you know, well, it's what's in season, too. Yeah. You know. it, it is what's in season. Um, and you also think about some of the modern tables or things that are, quote, traditional. Um, let's talk about the Yule Log. Yeah. I mean, that's a really fun, uh, beautiful culinary uh, creation. Those, you know, sponge cakes that have been rolled, they've been stuffed with either preserves or creams or a buttercream, something like that, covered with a frosting, made to look like a log. So yes, it's usually a mocha or a chocolate, mm-hmm. something like that. And then those little meringue mushrooms and other things that go on them. Well, yeah, you know, that Yule log, let's face it, Yule the god Joel, that's a pagan god from the north, um, and all of the mythology and folklore around the Yule log of putting it on the fire no, you know, earlier than Christmas Eve, and you need to allow it to burn very carefully so it does not exhaust itself during the 12 days of Christmas, and that, I guess, means you've got to jiggle it around and put other logs <laughs> on, burn, but right? do things because you need to keep that little tiny piece of burned uh, ember and Stick it away and then put it in the fire on the next Christmas Eve with your new Yule log. And it acts as a talisman to protect you during the year. You keep that in the house and it's supposed to ward off fire. Or if there's a horrible raging storm, you're allowed to then take it out and burn it. And that's supposed to quell the storm. Um, But it's all of these uh, ideas that your behavior during the Christmas season is going to determine your uh, luck and your fate for the following year. I mean, there's so much with New Year's Eve about the first footers and, you know, how you step out of your house. Is it the right foot, the left foot, or a guest coming in? Left foot, right foot. We know uh, the left foot from the Latin sinestra, sinister. We, you know, you can't have that left foot coming in. You need dexter, that right foot coming in. The dexterous, the appropriate, the skillful. Um, It's just to me fascinating the way we have uh, been able to take these different uh, concepts uh, even going back to linguistics language uh, and apply them to how we look at our uh, lives going forward in these holiday times. You can say you're not a superstitious person and yet your life has incorporated, one's life has incorporated all of these heretofore superstitions into as you mentioned into into our language into you know into you don't even think about no you you don't think about them and you're fooling yourself if you think you're not a superstitious person on some way there are these uh just tropes that inform our life and you'd have to grow up in a bubble not to have them uh impact you in very very subtle and that's not a bad thing i think Mm -hmm. it is what makes us culturally interesting so this year, what do you anticipate is going to be on your winter solstice celebration table? Uh, I came across online a recipe for the 
dark Sienese kind of spice and pepper cakes. Uh, and I've clipped it. I have purchased the ingredients. And that is what I am going to be oh, making. Day. Uh, well, this one is actually even... Panepapato. Fru- oh, yeah, panepapato. It is even fruitier than the panforte. So I'm going to give my... Uh, I'm going to try that one. Um, and I may be persuaded by some friends to make my traditional Twelfth Night cake that I make every year with I, marzipan. I, I wanted you to mention that because you made that for your first talk that I had heard on the winter solstice. Absolutely. And it was indeed. Talk, talk to us a little bit about the Twelfth, twelfth Night cake. Oh, Twelfth Night cake is a lot of fun now. Twelfth Night, of course, refers to the Twelve Days of Christmas. Uh, the Twelve Days of Christmas go back to the 6th century, actually, in the Council of Tours, when it was ruled that there would be a holiday feasting period for 12 days, starting from December 25th and going through Epiphany. That's the time it took for you know, the wise men, the magi, to see the Christ child after seeing the you know, star in the sky and traveling, all of that. So we understand why there are 12 days there. Uh, that's the end of the uh, feasting season traditionally. And you would have to end that season with a you know, final large feast. And the culmination of that feast would be a 12-night cake. You had to have a blowout, right? Some Absolutely. Big, some big blowout. <laughs> Absolutely. And depending upon exactly where you were and in what time of history, uh, they were actually... Uh, extremely popular in 18th and 19th century England. Uh, beautifully decorated. They would have figures on the top that were made of marzipan and you know other sugar work. Um, there would be buried in the cakes often little tokens and whomever received the particular token and there was meaning ascribed to whichever token was uh, found by the uh, diner, uh, you might have to host the Twelfth Night Party next year. So it wasn't necessarily... Uh, Slice your cake carefully. <laughs> it was not economically always a good thing. And, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, looking at these traditions because we also... Um, see these uh, king's cakes. Uh, If you are doing the New Orleans or the French version, it's the king's cake with a little bit plastic baby Jesus that gets baked uh, into them. So you want to be careful biting down into your cake. Um, But the 12th night cake that I make is an English version. Uh, It comes from a cookery notebook that was owned by Martha Washington. But what we know about the recipe is that it's not an 18th century American recipe, uh, from the way it's written, it clearly goes back to England in the 17th century and truly was an heirloom. These cakes were large. Um, She and George were thought to have been married on January 6th on Epiphany Mm. or Twelfth Night. Uh, So there's some thought that perhaps this was her wedding cake uh, recipe, but we don't actually know for sure. Uh, But it's a lovely cake. It's got marsala, some cognac. Uh, dried fruits, candied fruits. Um, the nicest addition uh, to my palate is the candied ginger that mm, goes nice. into yeah. it, which has such a lovely peppery uh, flavor to it. Oh. Well, whatever you find on your holiday table this season, think about it a little bit. You know, that Christmas ham, maybe the, the standing rib roast that you have, or just some nice nutty cookies or a fruit cake. The fruit cake, the nutty fruit with nuts and dried fruits. And you'll realize that you're eating a little bit of history. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wish all of you a wonderful holiday season, and I will see you after the new year. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Kathy Coffin, for joining me. My pleasure. Always, always a treat to hear your great information. Thank you. And as you are thinking of your holiday list in the end of the year, I hope that you will add Heritage Radio Network to your list. Go to our website at heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart. We are a member-supported radio. We need your help to keep going. Thank you. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.